If you ever wanted to unlock the secrets of maintaining a successful attitude over the course of a lifetime, then this conversation might help. This is The Relationship Show with Dr. Wendy and Miss Jenny, and we're sharing with you a recent conversation we had with Senior Vice President of Dick Clark Productions, 85-year young television director and producer, Al Schwartz. Al is the son of a rabbi and was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home in Chicago during the Depression. Yeah, you had to have a religion. I really didn't know why. He followed his path to the University of Wisconsin, where he joined both a fraternity and the well-known Harris Foot Club. The motto of the club was, all of our men are women, yet everyone's a lady. After he was drafted, my mother was a nervous wreck. And during his time in Japan, he found creative ways to use his performance and production talents overseas in service to his country and maybe a little bit to his buddies and to Ed Sullivan. What? Yeah. So something I totally dorked out about as well was that he came up through CBS Chicago during the golden age of television, which is totally cool in itself. But here's the thing. Al was actually present in the studio for the 1960 Kennedy-Nixon debate. It was like I had touched history. Along the way, this son of a rabbi fell in love with a Catholic girl who also happened to be a double mint twin. Uh-huh. So he's had to make some hard choices in his life and in his most important relationships. But my Jewish guilt <laughs> making me crazy. Following his passion professionally, eventually landed him in Los Angeles and at Dick Clark Productions where he still works. So you can Google him, call him up on IMDb, but I'll tell you what, he's produced the Golden Globes for the past 27 years, the American Music Awards for like the last 40, and... I, I swear he was headed off to work when we were done interviewing him uh, for this. So, you know, that just tells you a little bit about Al. So stick around to find out how, in spite of how much has changed since Al's childhood. We called him midgets then, but now we refer to him as little people. One thing hasn't. It's that he's always been a dreamer. Wouldn't it be nice someday? And he's also a Second City alum. Oh, and he also happens to be Dr. Wendy's dad. Yeah. Let's do this. Did you ask? Uh, to get very <laughs> good, good. We love intimacy. I think we're good. Are okay. you recording? Yeah, we're always. Is this thing on? This thing recording? is on. Okay. This is on. We are live. We are live. Uh, we're not actually live. We are alive or live. We're alive, but we're not live. <laughs> oh my goodness! How was um how how were the Golden Globes last weekend? Were you there on site and okay. calling the show and I mean, what? Yeah. What do you I, do during that? Okay, I, during the Golden Globes, I'm uh, backstage. I'm never really out where the audience is, and uh, this was my 27th year. So I've been through. Uh, a lot of people, and it's the most fun of any, I, I can't call it a job because uh, it, it's really like just the event that it is. The, the Globes is very rare because it brings together uh, a community of uh, people who work in our industry. It's always held at the Kahala. Uh, Kahala Hilton. We're talking about the Kahala. <laughs> yeah, at let's the Beverly go to Hilton. Yeah, at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. It's a very, very small venue. It, it uh, holds about twelve hundred people, 
and it's the toughest ticket in town. You virtually cannot get into that into the to the event. Uh, I've had lots of friends who ask me, "Can can I go?" And uh, the tickets sell for six hundred dollars a piece. Ooh, it's almost Hamilton and, prices. Yeah, yeah <laughs> almost. And uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press—it's their main fundraiser for the year. the uh, The show is the uh, uh, precludes the uh, the Oscars. It serves a, a terrific function in our business because. The Golden Globe sets up the rooting interest in the best movies and television shows for the year. And one year when there was a uh, writer's strike and the Golden Globes did not go on the air, the Oscars ratings suffered tremendously because people didn't know the movies. They didn't care to tune into the Oscars. So uh, we serve a, a specific function. There's a lot of people who ask, uh, how does the Hollywood Foreign Press have such an influence? There are only 90 members to the Hollywood Foreign Press, and they keep it small intentionally. The, uh, the members are all writers and contribute to uh, newspapers, television shows all over the world. And uh, they have very, very rigid qualification. So you can't, uh, there's a lot of jokes in our industry of, who are the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press? A lot of people say, oh, they're taxi drivers, they're waiters and waitresses around the industry. They don't really, you know, they're, they're not uh, prolific people. But the truth is that they are. They're, uh, many of them contribute to three or four different newspapers or three or, three or four different countries. And uh, they spend the entire year looking at television shows and movies before they make their decisions. And uh, although they, uh, their decisions don't always concur with the Oscars, uh, they seem to break a lot of ground though in, in the way they vote. And they're- uh, With diversity? Well, definitely well, this year, I would say even nominations this year were spectacularly diverse. Yeah, this year the, the uh, I, they're, uh, uh, they've always been very di diverse. They, they've been uh, a group of people who have kind of uh, led the forefront to new television shows. They picked uh, Transparency, for instance, as a, as a uh, television series long before anybody even knew where it was. And uh, they, they do their homework. And this year's nominees were really incredible if people wanted to look for diversity they they may have even uh, uh, felt that they went uh, overboard but the Hollywood Foreign Press has always been uh, very observant and and trendy and you also produced the and directed the uh, American Music Awards for how many years uh, I produced the American Music Awards for almost 40 years I, I began on wow. the American Music Awards at the third show, I think, in 1977. It was kind of interesting. I, I had uh, been a freelance producer uh, here in, in Los Angeles, and uh, 
most of the work that I was doing around that time were uh, in the documentary field and, and in the children's fields. <clears throat> I always felt that uh, it was important for me to impress my own children. Aww. And so uh, by doing shows like uh, Croft Saturday morning shows, it made me a big man because I produced shows like uh, uh, Far Out Space Nuts <clears throat> and uh, Wonder Bug. I mean, children grew up on Sid and Marty Croft shows. And uh, one year, I think it was in 1976, uh, Dick Clark invited me to come to uh, the American Music Awards. Did you work for with him at that time or no? I had worked, I did a, a, a pilot with Dick, also in the children's uh, world. I, I did a show called uh, The Real World of Make-Believe, and it probably was a little bit ahead of its time in the world of reality, because what it did, uh, based on the premise that children love to pretend, and in observing my own children, how they could uh, turn a chair upside down and say, hey, Daddy, I'm in a spaceship. You know, and uh, and I would say, oh, yeah, where are you going? And they'd say, I'm going to Mars or wherever. And by watching them and see how much they involve themselves in this imaginary world, I thought, gee, wouldn't it be potentially a good idea to put kids in the real world and let them fantasize for real? Uh, case in point, we... Uh, we took uh, uh, one child and let him pretend he was a cowboy. And instead of just pretending, we took him out on a ranch and uh, let him round up cattle and uh, watch when the, the cattle were branded and uh, sit at a campfire with other cowboys. Uh, to, uh, to make it more real for him, we took an imaginary character out of television, like Michael Landon, who was star of Bonanza, and Michael Landon was his guide in this real world of, of uh, being a cowboy. Took another uh, little girl, <clears throat> and we got uh, uh, Bob Crane, who was on uh, Hogan's Heroes, <clears throat> and played an, an airplane pilot, or at least a, a, a veteran, uh, who had been captured during World War II based on the... Uh, the Broadway show Stalag 17. And in this case, uh, Bob Crane uh, welcomed this girl to uh, to the world of aviation. He said to her, uh, you really mean you want to be a stewardess? And she said, no, I want to be a pilot. And so we arranged with uh, Western Airlines at the time to take her through pilot training with a bunch of adults. She sat in the classroom and she learned what pilots were going through. And uh, then uh, at the end, she actually sat in a in a training flight where she could call the tower and the tower would give her permission for takeoff and she would do a, a fire drill in the plane and then uh, uh, actually take off on a on a flight where she was the co-pilot. The plane, of course, was empty, but uh, but she still could live the actual experience of, of being a pilot. So making dreams come true. Making dreams come true is uh, what my whole world is about anyway, It's uh, including my own. Uh, the, uh, the other parts of this, of this show was uh, 
a girl who wanted to be a recording artist, went to a recording studio with Donny Osmond. And uh, I loved Donny Osmond. Now I saw you produce that show. Oh yeah. my god! I had I the Donny to... Osmond doll. Oh, yeah. I had little records. purple socks. I would make the records speak to me over and over again. I would play uh, Puppy Love, and they call it Puppy Love. And they called it Puppy Love. Also, you used to do I'm a little bit country and I'm a little bit rock and roll. Yeah, because I was part of your, yep. Well, again, try, feeling that I was impressing my own children, uh, I did the, the first Donnie and Marie special that led to their series. And uh, so, so, I mean, it was it was a matter of, my children were saying, oh, my daddy does, works with Donnie and Marie. And that was... Uh, so we were your inspiration, but then you acted on your inspiration and it opened up a whole world where you did what you loved. Well, it became a challenging point in my life when uh, Dick Clark offered me a permanent job with Dick Clark Productions. Uh, I had to make a choice of either doing the... Uh, Donnie and Marie series or the American Music Awards as a special. And I remember that uh, uh, when I was working on the real world of make-believe <clears throat> for Dick, the, the pilot, uh, Dick invited me to a party at his house. Uh, we had just moved to California and I really didn't know very many people here. I, I had I came here to do a uh, variety show, a satirical comedy series for ABC called What's It All About World. And uh, because I had the unique background in Chicago of not only working as a television director, but uh, kind of freelancing at night with the Second City Group, which uh, was a group of improvisational players that became very, very famous with uh, lots of stars who came out of Second City. Still is. Uh, and uh, so I would workshop in the afternoon doing improvisational comedy. And at night I would be, uh, I was either stage manager and then became a director and eventually a producer at CBS in Chicago. I just want to interrupt by saying none of that probably made you a lot of money at the time, but it brought you joy. Well, it wasn't about the money. <laughs> it, it was never, in my life, was never really about the money. Though I shouldn't say, I always dreamed about getting, uh, uh, having a position in a place like working for a network. My first, <clears throat> first job in television, I was at the University of Wisconsin. And timing is so much an important part of our world. The first television class opened up at the University of Wisconsin, and I applied for it, and I was lucky enough to be in that first television class. There weren't any television stations in Madison at the time. Uh, all of the television that we saw in Madison came in from Milwaukee. WTMJ in Milwaukee was the only station that uh, that they had in, that anybody could, could watch television on. And... Uh, as a student at the University of Wisconsin, I tried out for a uh, musical comedy in uh, in Madison at the university. We there was a club 
at the university called the Harrisfoot Club. And Harrisfoot is the uh, uh, the way old vaudevillians used to put uh, makeup or powder on their face. They actually used the foot of a rabbit and dipped it into the powder and put, put the powder on their face. And so this club was one of three variety clubs in universities around the country. Uh, Princeton had the uh, Hasty Pudding Club, and uh, Harvard had, the, let's see, when was the, the Hasty Pudding? And I, I can't remember now what Harvard's club, but Harvard, Princeton, and the University of Wisconsin had these clubs that would put on musical comedies. And uh, I was, I tried out, uh, like really on a, on a long shot. You had to audition in three areas, uh, singing, dancing, and acting. Uh, I couldn't dance. I had no rhythm. In all <laughs> my life, I, I avoided uh, uh, trying to dance with, dancing with a girl would be horrific in my life. And because I knew that I, I had no, no rhythm and I never wanted to embarrass myself. To this day, my wife will say to me, uh, gee, I feel like dancing. And I'll say, let's go. And she'll say to me, not with you. So <laughs> I'd say, okay. But anyway, I... What about singing? Could, you had to sing. Singing, I have no voice. My wife would never let me sing in front of the children. She said, never, ever sing in front of the children, no matter what. So the only place I could really sing would be in my car with the windows closed, rolled up. And, uh, but anyway, I, I auditioned... Uh, I still remember the, the, it was the worst experience of my life. Was that I had, the first time that you'd ever auditioned for anything? Had you done anything no, in high school? Or? No, as a, as a kid, boy, this, again, you're taking me way, way back. You're with two therapists, Pop. Right. Yeah, okay. As a kid, way, way back, I, I was, uh, I, I would, uh, after school, go to a place called the Humble Park Boys Club. And at the Boys Club, uh, I got into a, uh, a dramatic club, and they did a, a play at the boys' club called "Jerry Sees the Gorilla." Boy, this is this is in the forties, <laughs> and uh, so I had one line in this play. I followed a, a taller guy around and kept bumping into him, and uh, my one line was uh, "After you, Flanagan," <laughs> and uh, no matter that's what the I would say this line maybe twenty times during the course of this play. After you, Flanagan, when I bump into him, this this play was part of a radio competition that was uh, sponsored by CBS in Chicago, and uh, so I still remember that I went to my first audition was this play, and uh, right behind you, Flanagan, was my my only line. Your moment. My moment. That when you were bitten. Yeah. Well, I was not, not that I was bitten, but we lived next door to the boys' club. And the uh, the guy that ran this club was a guy named Maury Levin. And Maury Levin said to my mother, based on right behind you, Flanagan, your son's got real talent. <laughs> so my mother took me downtown to a place called uh, Joe Keith School of Entertainment. And uh, every Saturday morning, I would uh, learn to uh, pantomime and... Uh, my big pantomime was being a pirate and eating a turkey leg. <laughs> and uh, my mother would sit in the back of the room and say, my son is going to go to Broadway. Look at him. 
Just adoring. Go, yeah, and uh, I would go uh, before the dramatic class on Saturday mornings. Uh, I would go to the Boston store. The Boston store was a department store in Chicago. And there was a guy there that it, it, at this time in department stores, there were a lot of demonstrations in the stores, sales demonstrations to get people to buy things. And uh, so there was a guy in this at the Boston store that did a uh, shampoo demonstration. I had watched him a few times and I learned his sales pitch and I would do it for my mother. And one day my mother said to this guy, my son can do your sales pitch. Mm -hmm. I was probably 10 years old or 11 years old. Oh my God. And uh, this guy would say, oh yeah? He'd say, uh, what's your name? I'd say, my name is Alan Schwartz. He'd say, okay, Alan, let me see you do this demonstration. <laughs> so I would uh, call all the ladies around to them. Say, ladies, ladies, over here, ladies, ladies, <laughs> come over here. And pretty soon a crowd would gather around the, this counter and I'd say I want to talk to you about Beauty Sheen hair shampoo still remember oh the pitch God. I could do the pitch today and the pitch was uh, ladies every day you watch your husband's hairline go back a little further yep every day that hairline goes back a little further you do nothing about it he does nothing about it pretty soon nobody can do anything about it <laughs> and the, the women would stand in front of me with their eyes open and we would sell a lot of oh, <laughs> a lot of I shampoo. I bet it was adorable too. But, well, oh my god! I got three dollars for the demonstration, which was a lot of money back then. A lot of money, and I took that three dollars, and that went to Joe Keith to pay for my dramatic lessons. Wow. So, you know, everything evolved around this one thing. But the one thing Joe Keith couldn't teach me was to sing. Oh. <laughs> couldn't teach me to sing. Couldn't teach me to dance. But I learned to do comedy routines. And at the time, uh, World War II was uh, dominating most of our lives. And I would go out to Great Lakes Naval Station to entertain the, the troops. That would be my thing. I would, I would learn something at Joe Keith, and then they would bus us out to, to Great Lakes Naval Station. And I would perform for the troops. So that, would, that performing kept on through high school where I would do some performing. And then in junior college, I, uh, I would be in, uh, in a lot of plays. And then when I got to the University of Wisconsin, it was uh, you know natural, natural for me to try out yeah. for uh You really laid the groundwork and did, yeah. you know, you did the work. I mean, it, some but, people think it's much easier than that, you know, cause. Well, I also had a little flair for the business sense of entertainment because while at the University of Wisconsin, I formed a, uh, a club called the Entertainers Guild. I felt that there were a lot of kids on campus that could perform, sing, dance, juggle, do something. And everybody was looking for a way to make a little extra money. So I organized these entertainers so that fraternity parties and events in Madison, they could come to the Entertainers Guild and I would give them a list of kids that they could call, and these kids could go out and make, I don't know, ten or fifteen dollars by entertaining at uh, at uh, churches and temples and whatever. Anyway, this led to uh, 
a radio show on this WKOW radio in Madison, and uh, and I had met the manager of the of the radio station, and so when I was in the first television class, he came to our television class and said, uh, "Okay, WKOW is going to go on the air. We're going to be the first television station in Madison. Who wants to work at the television station?" So obviously my hand shot up. Willingness, this all goes back here to the question about making money. and. Uh, but also the, following your heart, your dream, I call it following the breads, you know, the, the uh, breadcrumbs, mm -hmm. you know, paying yeah. attention to well, opportunities and then acting on them. Well, opportunities are is really a key word because all of us as we grow up, we we have opportunities and and having the the insight to take advantage of an opportunity is very important. It may be something that you're scared to death to do, but you, do it anyway. You, you, yeah, you just have to say, you know, even if yes. I can't do it, I'll I'll try. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, I I don't think I ever accepted the word failure. Be afraid to fail. I wasn't afraid to fail, and I think uh, that's pretty key because when I auditioned for the Harrisford Club, I wasn't afraid to fail. I I was going to tell you that I had to sing this song, uh, 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 The Moon Belongs to Everyone. Uh, I can't remember the you know exactly the lyrics. I do. I, I don't know the lyrics. It goes, uh, the moon belongs to everyone. It hangs there for you and me. The moon belongs to When I had to sing that song, they handed me the lyrics, and they and the piano player said, uh, "What key do you sing in?" I had no idea. I said, "I sing in all of them." And he said, uh, "Okay." So he did a little uh, chord. And he said, "Try this one." And then I sang this song. Well, the director of the show was one of the professors at the school. I remember he dropped his pencil, and he looked at me. He said, uh, "Alan." Just sing. I said, I am singing. <laughs> and uh, at any rate, as I say, I knew that at that mo moment I struck out. But but then when he when I read the the lines for the for the part that uh, he thought I could play, I, I got into the show based on my acting ability, which goes back to Joe Keith, and it goes back to the Humble Park Boys Club or whatever happened. But uh, one of the things in the Harrisfoot Club was because this the uh, this show toured around the state of Wisconsin, and one of the uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, charming things about it was they actually got a train car that was devoted to the Harrisfoot Club, and then the, you took this train together as a group, and you traveled to what I think of the big cities of Wisconsin, Janesville, Beloit. Uh, the show ended up in Milwaukee, but everybody wanted to be on this train. Because of the mores of the time, men and women couldn't travel together. So the club had no women in it. The motto of the club was, all of our men are women, yet everyone's a lady. <laughs> and and that was the that. same thing with the with 
the Princeton Club and the and the Yale Club. I think the Princeton was the Triangle Club and Yale's was the Hasty Hasty Pudding Club, and ours was the Harrisfoot Club. So I traveled the state. I got a part in this thing. I did not want to play a girl. I would pray, oh please, don't have them give me a girl's part. And the first first show I played a part of a of a sailor. The play was uh, called Follow the Girls. And originally on Broadway, Jackie Gleason and Gertrude Neeson were the stars of, of this show. The next year, I auditioned again for the next show. And uh, this was, this show, I really wanted to play one role. The three stars of this play on Broadway were Milt, uh, not Milt, were, were Bob Hope, uh, Jimmy Durante, and Ethel Merman. Play was uh, held in 1936. I always loved Jimmy Durante as a kid growing up, and I wanted the Jimmy Durante role, oh, so bad. What did you love about him? Jimmy Durante was a uh, a comic that uh, uh, had a very large nose. And he he based his a lot of his comedy on self-deprecation. He was always surrounded by big Broadway-type glamour girls, and uh, he always had the impression that, or gave the impression that he was the darling and the lover of all these people, you know. But it, but he was just a very very lovable character. Anyway, I auditioned for this part, and when the roles came out, the assignments, I got the role of Peaches, the comedy female lead in the You got the Ethel Merman role. Uh, no, no, Ethel <laughs> oh. Merman was a romantic lead. Oh, oh, so oh. I, but I, there was another, I can't, I don't know who Peaches. played my, but Peaches was my part, and I said, oh, God, no, I don't want to wear a dress. Please don't put me in a dress. But... I said, you know what, it's still being, I made the show, and that was the most important thing. You were grateful. I was grateful. I was happy, and no matter what, I said, you know, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take this role, and I'll do the best I can do in this role. Well, the gods who watch over all of us, for some reason, the guy that, and I thought I did a great Jimmy Durante when I auditioned, but there was a guy that did a better Jimmy Durante than I did. And I I obviously said, oh, well, okay, so being second is is okay. still okay. I still, I still got a part in the show. Well, the guy that played the Jimmy Durante role dropped out. And the director called me in and said, Al, you got the role of Policy Pinkle. That was the Jimmy Durante role. I looked up at heaven and I said, Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Because uh, I ate and drank the role of Jimmy Durante because I wanted it so bad. Uh, as life happens, it was the year that the universe, that the Wisconsin football team won the Big Ten. Everybody in the school tried to figure out how they were going to get 
to Los Angeles to go to the Rose Bowl game. I got together with five other guys and we decided we were going to drive nonstop from Madison to Los Angeles. A couple of us worked at the post office through the Christmas season to raise enough money to make this trip. A little bit of a hard worker, wouldn't you say? Well, <laughs> well he's also motivated. And... Oh well, but, but most important when events that kind of control your life. I was sitting in the Harrisford office one day by myself and I said, you know what? I'm going to go to California. I'd never been to California. Why not write to Jimmy Durante and tell him that I'm going to play a role that he played in 1936 and how great it would be if he had the time, if I could stop in and meet him dreamer part of you because some people would say oh what do you you know naysayers and stuff but well, I love that you think anything is possible I just thought it was possible at the time I wrote this letter and put it in the, the mailbox at the Wisconsin Union and afterwards I said are you crazy what are you doing I felt totally embarrassed that I had written a fan letter and I asked security at the universe at the Union if I could get that envelope back. I said, I, I put an envelope in the, in the mailbox and I got to get it back. And he said, there's no chance of you getting it back. That's against the law, first of all. Only the post office people can do that. And so I said, okay, Let look, it go. he'll never get it. I don't have to worry about it. Just, Toss it to the just universe. forget about it. Yep. About two weeks later, I was in the Harrisford office and uh, one of the guys in the office said, hey, Al, you got a letter from NBC in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, my heart started to beat. I said, oh, my God. And I said, oh, okay. And I took the letter. And <laughs> You're I, acting all cool. <laughs> yeah. I put the letter in my pocket, and, and I didn't want to open it in front of anybody. And I said to myself, you know what? It's going to be a form letter, and it'll be a letter saying, uh, uh, I'm sending you an 8 by 10 photograph signed uh thank you for your letter some something like that so when no one was around i opened up the letter and here was this hand scribbling on nbc stationery wow said dear al i'm looking forward to meeting you signed jimmy durante call me when you get to california so again i didn't believe the letter i said ah you know what someone's playing a joke here somebody got the letter say yeah some some college kid wrote Jimmy Durante, let's play along with him. And I put the letter in my pocket. Five of us drove to California nonstop. We drove through blizzards. We, For the first time, we saw mountains. We saw palm trees. It was an amazing new world that it opened up. Very different than yeah. the Midwest. We stayed, yeah, so we stayed at, uh, at a fraternity house at uh, Southern Cal. We were thinking of things to do. We would go to... Uh, to Hollywood and walk down the Walk of Fame and Grauman's Chinese Theater and we'd drive out to Malibu and we'd go to Beverly Hills to all the places tourists went. What was your fraternity, by the way? Uh, Zeta Beta Tau. That's another full story that I could tell you about. Uh, frat life. Well, not frat life so much as I was never the kind of person that could be in a fraternity. My <laughs> My parents couldn't afford it. And I never dreamed of being in a fraternity. And just the, the side issue of this is that uh, 
when I got to the University of Wisconsin, and I didn't want to go to Wisconsin, I wanted to go to Northwestern University. That's where I wanted to go because that supposedly had the best uh, theater school. I, mean, I was going to say, whatever, they still have the one of the best in yeah. the country. Well, I didn't make the cut. That was my first... Their loss. Yeah, first devastated thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, I, I, did, I didn't make the, the grades, and I got the letter that said, uh, unfortunately, uh, your grades were not acceptable to this university. Try again next year. Uh, and my uh, mother had mentioned to me that we had a relative that I didn't know that had gone to University of Wisconsin, and I didn't, I said, uh, uh, where is it? And my brother said, well, it's about two hours away from here. And uh, so I sent in an application, and lo and behold, I got accepted. And not knowing a soul in Madison, my uh my brother drove me up, and my mother went along for the ride, and they dropped me off. Uh... Sadie didn't go? What? Sadie? No. Why? No, he was working. My father never really had very much time to do anything but uh, right. go to work and go to temple. That was his life. And uh, But anyway, they, we went to, we couldn't afford uh, housing or anything really at the school, so we drove around the streets of Madison and found a uh, an attic apartment that I think rented for, I don't know, 10 or $12 a month or something like that. Which was really expensive back then. Yeah, well, it was expensive when you came from really uh, a very, very uh, middle-class family. I thought I was middle-class. My uh, I grew up during the Depression, and my father uh, had two jobs. He was never out of work. He made $15 a week. But uh, saw to it that we had everything. We never knew we were poor, and uh, and I probably got my worth work ethics from my father. Uh, because uh, I've always I've always worked and always loved working, no matter what it was. But uh, I never dreamed that I would be in a fraternity. As a matter of fact, when I was at this little rooming house. Uh, there were probably 10 or 12 guys in this house. And one day, one of the guys said to me, uh, uh, what are you doing for dinner? And I said, uh, I don't know why. He said, well, come on, it's fraternity rush week and we can get dinners for nothing. And I said, how? He said, we just go to the fraternities. We go to their dinners and we meet the guys and we talk to them and uh, then they invite us back. And you know, you, you don't have to join the fraternity, you just go to dinner there. So I did that for fraternity rush week. I, I went to a couple of fraternities, and they kept inviting me back, and I kept having dinners, free dinners. I thought, boy, this is a real scam. <laughs> you always said yes. No matter yeah. what, my father throughout his lifetime, you know, I always watched him say yes, show up. You still do that to this day. You know, yeah. he goes to every bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, wedding, funeral, sweet 16, whatever it is. If there's an invitation, my dad shows up. He just is, he always uh, I, pays I attention feel, to opportunity. I think, well, it's not opportunity. I think we all have a social obligation and responsibility to the sure. people that we surround ourselves with. And uh, it's... Their gifts case, in your path. Well, a case in point is like funerals. You know, it's... Uh, 
it's a responsibility to our life to help somebody celebrate their life by going to their funeral. It's not a thing that I love to do, like to do, but I think it's a, an obligation and a responsibility. But I'll go back to the fraternity situation. I kept getting back by this uh, Zeta Beta Tau fraternity as well as a few others. And finally they put the pressure on me like, uh, like you know, car salesman would do and say, okay, now is the time and the moment. Or a woman. Yeah, and I, yeah. Well, and I, and so I remember saying to a couple of the guys at the fraternity, look, uh, I've been deceiving all of you. I, uh, I can't afford uh, a fraternity. There's no way. And uh, I, I, I've enjoyed the meals. I've enjoyed meeting all you guys, but I, I, I just could never afford this. And my, my parents would die if I asked them to try to come up with money. They can barely afford for me to be coming to school. So these particular guys uh, said, look, we like you. And what can we do to, to help you? So um, they gave me a meal job, which was I could earn all my meals by uh, making salads before the, the guys came down to, to, the, to the meal. Then I could actually sit with them during the meal because I had already done my work. They said, uh, you can collect the, uh, uh, the dry cleaning bill, bills for this dry cleaner. And he'll give you a commission based on, uh, and these guys were really dirty guys. <laughs> they were wealthy and they had lots of shirts and pants and things. So, so I actually made. You mean like, literally yeah, dirty. You're not yeah. talking about morally shady, yeah, no, corrupt. No, I, You're talking I, about like. The... I collected the bills and yeah, for this guy and enough work for them and, and it was good. And in addition. Uh, I lived in a fraternity yeah, for a while. Yeah. Frat guys are dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also sold shoes. When I went to school in uh, here in, in Chicago, and so uh, uh, I went to the school uh, employment office, and I found a job selling shoes. So I, I sold shoes, collected the the laundry bills, and had my meal job, and I was able to survive, and and I was able to uh, to be a fraternity boy, uh, something that I had never ever thought of, along with uh, the whole college experience I uh, I certainly didn't look like a fraternity boy and when I joined a fraternity all my friends in Chicago were aghast at it they said oh yeah what are you gonna do we get uh, white buck shoes and get a crew cut too because I had long wavy hair duck style of the 50s and uh, and I said no never that will never ever happen to me but little by little it did I, I what was ZBT like as a fraternity uh, what it was it like known as because I know some are and I know it varies from campus to campus but it's like there's the jock fraternity there's the the you know the nerd fraternity there's you know there's different yeah I I don't I don't know how I would classify the ZBT fraternity they they were uh, mostly made up of kids from Milwaukee uh, they were uh, uh, not particularly athletic though there was a baseball team of the fraternity uh there were a couple of guys that were on the football team but i think what attracted me there were a couple of guys that were kind of show business guys 
Matter of fact, one guy was very instrumental in uh, in helping me get into this Harrisfoot Club. He was a member of the Harrisfoot Club, and I, I didn't know what it was, but he kind of told me about it. He also was a kid that uh, did a lot of songwriting and played the piano and made up his own songs and, and stuff, and he dragged me along with him. There was another kid that was uh, very active at WHA, the radio station, at the university, and I was impressed by by the people that were kind of in the field that I had hoped maybe one day to be a part of. Sure. But more important, they were really the uh, antithesis of what I thought about wealthy kids. I thought they really didn't care about it, you know, other people, and uh, why they took a particularly liking to me, I I don't know, but they. Uh, they did, and they were not uh, 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 guys that were uh, prudes or uh, acted uh, snobby. snobby or better than anybody else. And uh, so I, I felt I felt very much at home with them. And I remember when I told my parents that I was going to join a fraternity. They uh, they said, "Look, we've we've done everything we can for you. Don't." Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. How did Zadie feel since you all were Orthodox growing up? My father? Uh-huh. My father... My father was uh, a great influence on my life because of his work ethics. Uh, he also taught me that uh, never to not accept a... Uh, a responsibility or a goal or any kind of a job or a duty. And he also taught me that once you say you're going to do it, you do it, no matter what. When you commit yourself, uh, even if you hate it, you fulfill your responsibility. My father, when he had two jobs during the Depression, uh, working for uh, two different bakeries, driving a truck, I don't know, maybe he had a night shift and a day shift, and he uh, uh, continued to go to temple. He was very devoted, and for a while I was very devoted too, I, but I I wanted to assimilate more than anything in this world. I, I didn't want to be uh, isolated in terms of uh, growing up, that I had to be in a particular neighborhood or part of a of an ethnic group, or whatever. I mean, it, uh, I loved uh, religion, but I didn't see a difference between any two or three or four faiths. To me, there's only one God, and uh, no matter who you are, you pray to that God. And uh, did you grow up in a multicultural? Uh, neighborhood? I did. Growing up? I did. Uh, uh, the neighborhood. Well, a lot of people would think it was a Jewish neighborhood, but uh, my friends were uh, 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 Polish, Italian, Lithuanian. I I just remembered being part of everybody, and I and I and for as a Jewish kid, I I'd go to uh, uh, Hebrew school after school, but my Catholic friends went to study catechism and it, it seemed like everybody would go and do their particular thing but then we'd all come to the Humboldt Park Boys Club and 
you know, that was where it's we like all the boys hung and out. Girls Club, I guess, yeah, huh? like yeah. boys and girls clubs of today, and and uh, uh, I felt that yeah, you had to have a religion. I really didn't know why. As when it came time to choose a life partner, I didn't look particularly that I had to be married in the Jewish faith or the Protestant faith or the Catholic faith. Uh, faith and uh, when I fell in love, uh, it was just falling in love. And in my case, it happened to be uh, a Catholic uh, girl. Did you meet your wife in college? Do you... No, I met my wife when I uh, I got a job at CBS in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back to this yeah. dollar thing okay. for a yes. minute. When Wendy yeah. said, you never cared about money. <laughs> when I worked at the television station in Madison, uh, we had to do everything. We had to build the scenery, sweep the floor, take our turn on camera, work as a director. We had to do everything. It was like summer stock, practically. And... Uh, I had the, the pay, and the guy that ran the station was a guy named Mike Henry. When he came to the to our class, the television class at the University of Wisconsin, because we were the only ones in at Wisconsin that had television exper experience. We knew how to run a camera. We knew how to write a newscast or whatever we had, we had learned in our classroom. It was all theory. It wasn't really practicality because, in a sense maybe three or four of us got jobs at, at this television station. The guy that beat me out of the Jimmy Durante part, he also was one of the guys who worked at the television station with me and was in this television class. He dropped out of the television thing because he said, I'm not going to light a bottle of beer. He said, he said, this is not art. And I said, I don't care. I'll light a bottle of beer. I'll do whatever was required. It didn't make a difference. It was all fun to me. Right. Building the scenery, even sweeping the floor. I didn't care because it was all being part of the group that was putting on a television show. And my duties were to do uh, a uh, an afternoon kids show called Al's Pals where every every television station then had a like a puppet show. So I created a puppet that was a chicken that I talked to. And I named him after my father, Herman. So I would talk to Herman, uh, and we would. It would be like every kids' television show. You would uh, just introduce uh, clips of uh, whatever cartoon uh, uh, cartoons were uh, kind of popular at the time. And then at night, after the news and the weather, I would have to be the the Johnny Carson of the station, and I would do the the. Uh, late night uh, variety show. And uh, that was good because as the guy who created this entertainers guild at the university, I had access to all these kids. So I would put them all on. They'd yeah, be my guests. Yeah, they'd be my guests at, at the station. And you legitimized it too, I'm sure, because they knew you and yep. knew that you knew what they were capable of and it could was, bring out their best. It was, an, it was easy for me to do and, uh, and I love that. And my dad is a connector, and I think that's where I get that too, you know, finding nice people or groups and connecting them and linking them together. I'm also hearing he's a team player, and he's looking at a bigger picture. I, I enjoy being a conduit. doesn't matter to this day if uh, somebody needs an introduction or something to somebody else. If I can do that, 
that's my pleasure. It's not a job. It's not a, you know, it's not a duty. It's just pleasurable. And uh, anyway, my, <clears throat> my dollar an hour just led to dreams of someday working for a real television station. Did you I, say that in your mind, like, or say it out loud, or it's just a thought, or did you write I, it down? No, I never wrote it down at the time. I would say it to the other people that, uh, that worked at the station. Wouldn't it be nice someday to, to live the dream of uh, going to a, uh, you know, like, say, a network station, or uh, someday, although I didn't know what Hollywood was really like, but... So you held the Hollywood. vision yeah. because you just shared your dream wherever you went. Yeah. So you did, it's a, you know, we call it positive self-talk, but really it's setting your intention, putting it out in the world. We talk a lot about, you know, verbalizing it to the universe. I know that sounds fluffy, but that's what you were doing. Yeah, well, you know what it is. It's uh, hoping one day to live the fantasy. We all have our fantasies from the time, as I mentioned, kids pretending to be in whatever world they are. Uh my, uh, I, I don't think I ever stopped dreaming of uh, whatever the next step is. I don't know what the next step is, but just be open to it. And uh, stay open. So, yeah. <laughs> so we would we would talk at the television station of our dollar an hour jobs, but maybe one day, and uh, as uh, life would lead me. Uh, I was at the television station for about a year before I got drafted, and drafted is now taking your turn to serve the country. And uh, I never wanted to uh, uh, evade that. I knew that I would be in the service sometime, and uh, I wasn't afraid of it. I, as a matter of fact, I knew the day would come when I would be called, and. Uh, uh, I remember that on my last television show, I had the local barber come in and shave my hair on camera so that uh, I would be ready for my uh, for my GI experience. And when I got into and and fortunately, when I went to uh, into the service, because I had a, a college degree. Guys with college degrees usually ended up in clerk typist school. So, and I went to clerk typist school and I learned to, to type. And uh, I was assigned to, uh, in basic training, to the 81st Medium Tank Battalion. I never saw a tank. I mean, it was just a place. But my mother was scared to death. She said, what do you mean you're driving tanks? Oh, no. And I said, no, Mom, I'm not driving a tank. She said, well, I don't want you driving a tank. And okay, I, Mom, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell I, them. <laughs> I said, no, no, don't worry. And she said, uh, why don't you put on shows? And I said, that's not particularly my choice. But, uh, but when I finished uh, my eight weeks of basic training, it then became time to uh, go through uh, assignment for the next eight weeks. And that's where I went to clerk type of school. And after clerk type of school, I was assigned to go to the Far East. My mother was a nervous wreck. The, there wasn't any fighting. The Korean War had ended. The Vietnam War had not started. So I was in a like a good position. And I was looking forward to going to the Far East. I was always in, intrigued with the Far East. And I got an assignment to go to Japan. And when I got to Japan... I went through classification and assignment again. And 
whatever power controls our lives. A sergeant that was assigning people said to this group of maybe 300 guys that were waiting to go to the next plateau of their, their lives in the service said, anybody have any branch that they would like to go to? So that means, do you want to go to MPs? Do you want to go to infantry? W whatever. And I put up my hand and he said, where do you want to go, soldier? And I said, special services, because I knew special services was responsible for putting on shows and whatever else uh, in, in, in the Army. Usually that's not a time to volunteer because the, the Army was notorious for, you say you want to go to special services, they're going to put you in a truck battalion or something. Right. And I shuddered a little bit, say, okay, what are they going to do with me? And the guy said, how do you spell your name, soldier? And I said, Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, and he wrote it down. And he said, okay. He said, you're going to Armed Forces Far East Headquarters to the Special Service Office. And again, just like getting the, Dur the Durante role. Took a chance. Thank you, God. My job in, in Special Services was to uh, sort mail for USO troops. So, I mean, I wasn't putting on shows. I was... But it was okay. I was in the special services and I could write to my mother and say, I'm in special services, mom. <laughs> and she would just be happy I wasn't driving a tank. <laughs> Again, like, like whatever happens in our lives, I was in the special services office one day at lunch when the phone rang and uh, I answered the phone for the office and it was a, a master sergeant who ran the non-commissioned officers club and he said uh we need an mc at the club again i said uh, sure i said uh, does that pay anything and the guy said yeah it pays ten dollars a night and we do three shows a week so my fast math was 120 dollars a month and i'm making 77 dollars a month as a private that could be a pretty good deal so i said to him yeah we got a guy here just came in from chicago he said, what's his name? I said, his name is Schwartz. He said, well, can you send him over? And I said, yeah, I'll send him over right after lunchtime. And then I went over and I talked to the guy and I got the job to... You got in there. ...to emcee these shows. Preparation met opportunity. Opportunity. Now, this guy, that uh, this Sergeant Moss that ran the club said to me, uh, look, I don't want to book these shows. I'm tired of it. He said, why don't you work with the Japanese agents and book the shows? And I said, great. So uh, we had a, one agent in particular, and I started booking the shows. All of a sudden, I was Ed Sullivan, and I was booking the shows. At the end of the month, this uh, agent handed me an envelope. I said, uh, what's this? He said, this is Presento You. So I opened the envelope, and there were 1,000 yen notes in there. A stack of them, <clears throat> probably about 20 maybe or 30. When I added it up, it wasn't all that much. It added up to about $70 or $75 in American money. I said, okay. Uh, I went to the club officer and I said, <clears throat> uh, hey, Sergeant Moss, uh, the agent gave me this envelope with the chien in it. Uh, he said, it's present on me, but what do I do with it? Do I give it to you? And he looked at me and he said, I never want to hear about this again. Do you understand? 
He said, you fold it up and you put it in your pocket and you say nothing to anybody. He said, that's the way the Japanese do business here. They show their appreciation. Just accept it. But my Jewish guilt <laughs> making me crazy. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know what to do with it. It was more money than I was making. Yeah, you said anywhere. you were making, what, yeah. 77 a month? Yeah, and then uh, yeah so my $75 a month that the Army was paying me was insignificant now because I'm making $120 for emceeing the shows, and now Joe Honda, we called the agent, kept giving me these envelopes. I would use the money to really my my buddies benefited because I would go into Tokyo, and it would be on me. I'd pay for drinks, I'd buy dinner, whatever it was. I just wanted to spend the money. I didn't want to put it in a bank anywhere. Afraid I'd be discovered. How is this private getting this money? One day at the club, bartender said to me, hey, Schwartz, there's a captain here who wants to see you. I thought, uh-oh, this is it. I'm going to jail. I'm busted. This is it. Busted is right. So they said, uh, there's a guy standing at the door. He said his name is uh, Captain Smith, and he wants to talk to you. So there was this officer standing there in civilian clothes, and I went over to him. I said, uh, you want to see me? He said, yeah, you Schwartz? I said, yeah. He said, uh, you booking the shows here? I said, yeah. He said, what kind of show is this? I said, I don't understand. He said, is this a clean show? I said, oh, yeah. He said, I book. I said, uh, my motto is the Ed Sullivan Show, and I book jugglers and uh, young kids and uh, country music, music, you know, whatever. I said, it's all, it's, it, they're all pretty good shows. <clears throat> he said, well, he said, I'm from the officer's club. I run the officer's club. He said, I got 23 generals and their wives at the club tonight and my show fell out and I got to bring a show over there. Is your show okay to bring over? I said, oh yeah, no, no problem. Were you nervous? So, what were you thinking in that moment? Give me give me some insight into what was happening internally in that moment for you. I was relieved because I thought for sure I was going to be arrested. <laughs> You're and like, oh, that's yeah, nothing. Yeah, I'm totally and he, there. Yeah, and here the, this guy was asking me to bring these shows over to him. And I, and I went to the guy and I said, can we? Can you guys stay for a second show tonight? And they said, sure, of course. And so this Captain Smith said, we'll pay him whatever you're paying him. He said, and... Uh, We'll give you $25 for emceeing the show. I said, great. So now I go over to the officer's club and I present them with the show. And uh, after do, he said, bring me, bring a show again for us next Saturday. And so now I've got extra billing and I'm getting an extra $25 again, another $100 a month. And then this Captain Smith says to me, Schwartz, we like you. I'm going to have you assigned to the club as your permanent job. And I said, oh, I, I can't do that because I got the job at the NCO club. He said, no, no, he said, I've already talked to your boss at Special Services, Colonel Sittler, and he, he said he'd love to see you at the club. So he said, now you'll, uh, you'll work from four in the afternoon till the club closes around midnight. He said, we won't necessarily like to see a guy in a PFC uniform around here, so you'll wear civilian clothes while you work at the club. And you won't be able to eat at the mess hall because your hours are going to be four to midnight. So you can eat all your meals here at the club. <laughs> so you can order off a menu and you can have whatever we... So wow. Now, now this is the headquarters of the Far East. So this is no schlocky club. I mean, they, 
they have more generals there than in the club. And I became the, like, the evening manager of the club, hosting the, hosting, you know, being the MC. And did you love it? I loved it. That was great because people would come in and they would, uh, like, like every maitre d', they'd ask me, uh, I'd ask them, how is it going? Anything I could do for you? Can I help you? On Wednesday nights, I would call bingo. That was my hazardous duty. <clears throat> and uh, In Japanese or no? Well, no, bingo was for all the Americans. Uh, at night after the club closed, I would conduct English classes oh with the Japanese God. people. So I was learning Japanese while they were learning a little bit of English. Oh my goodness. And one of the first nights of calling bingo, uh, Mrs. Morris, she was the wife of the transportation general, uh, won in bingo. And after that, I became her favorite person <laughs> at the club. So every time uh, she wanted to have a party or something like that, she would call me and then I would set up, you oh, know, whatever you're a party she party planner. Yeah, party oh, planner or whatever at the club. And uh, in booking the shows at the club, one day I, I heard a, a girl sing on, uh, on radio, Japanese girl. She sang like Ella Fitzgerald. Hmm. And at the club we had a, uh, a midget who was the doorman. And, uh, little people little, now. A little people now, right. We, we called them midgets then, but now we refer to them as little people. And he patterned himself after uh, an American uh, commercial character that was the Lucky Strike symbol. Uh, his name was Johnny. And in, in commercials he would say, this is Johnny stepping out of windows all over America, call for Miss Lucky Strikes or something like that. So I got to be very friendly with Johnny, and, and we would talk about Japanese personalities and whatever. And uh, so I said to Johnny one day, Johnny, I heard this girl on radio. Her uh, name is Eri Ch Chamey. jockey say and uh, he said oh she's big star boss and I said what do you mean big star he said oh she's everybody in Japan knows Ari Chamey so I said well that's great let's get her to perform at the club and he said oh no she won't sing for Americans and I said why not he said because she doesn't speak English I said but she's singing perfect English he said no no we sing phonetically we can duplicate American sounds and said but she won't speak for she won't sing for the club I said well I want to talk to her find her for me Johnny so anything is possible yeah so determination. Yeah, whatever why you know why not what's the worst that could yeah, happen yeah she'll say no so he got me the phone number of the agent in Tokyo and I called him and I told him about the agent I was working with to book the shows at the NCO, cl NCO club and the officers club. So he said, no, she won't, uh, this girl would not, would not perform for Americans. I said, is there any chance I can talk to her? <clears throat> he said, well, she happens to be in my office right now. Again, whatever opportunity. Mm. I said, well, please let me talk to her. So he put her on the phone and she spoke better English than, than it had any, been uh, anybody imagined. Of, yeah. At least enough that I could communicate 
half English, half Japanese tour. And I offered her $500 to perform at the club, which was an enormous amount of money then. It was 180,000 yen. So wow. if you could, so she said, but she was making a lot of money. That, that wasn't important to her. She said uh, to me, do you go to the PX? The PX is the, uh, the camp department store where uh, everybody goes to, to buy things that they, that they wanted to have, most, mostly things from the States. And I said to her, yes, I go to the PX. Why do you need something? She said, you know Bally Brasiers? And I said, no, I don't know Bally Brasiers. I said, but do you need Bally Brasiers? She said, yes. She said, I need two. So I said, what size? She said, I need uh, 32B. Can you get that for me? So I said, I'll try. She said, $500 and two brassiers. Oh, my God. I That's said, a negotiation. Yeah. I said, okay, you got it. Deal. That's the deal. So now I brought this Ari Chamey in to sing at the club, and it was big. And now I had opened the door for Japanese performers to come to the club to sing. Right. I'm not, I mean, big Japanese performers. So now I'm booking some of the biggest stars in Japan to come to the club. And now... Ed Sullivan comes to Japan, and the Army assigns me to be a liaison to Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan. to tell him about Japanese talent and GI talent so that he could have a choice. There's a girl that uh, uh, is like the teenage star of Japan. Uh, Zumi Yukimuro is her name. Ed Sullivan says, I want to book her. And I I was the conduit to set her up to go to the United States to sing for Ed Sullivan. Anyway, again, opportunities and whatever happens. Now I'm going to go full circle back to making money. I knew that it was time when I got back out of the Army to go back to, to Madison and work at the station again. Pay was still the same, $40 a week. And the dream was still to work at a network station. My mother was sent to the hospital in Chicago because she had terrible anxiety attacks. And I went to Chicago to visit her. And while I visited her at the hospital, she wanted to get some sleep and I told her, okay, I'll go take a walk and I'll come back. And I walked outside the, the hospital, Wesley Memorial Hospital was the name of the hospital and all our kids were born there. I walked around and around the block from the hospital was the CBS studios. They were called the arena studios because there was uh, a, uh, it was formerly a nice arena, but CBS bought the facility and, turned it into their television and radio studios. And walking past the studio, I said, why not go in and see if there are any jobs available here? Well, it would be unheard of, you know, really to walk in off the street and ask for the for a job. But I I went into the, to the receptionist and I said, is the personnel man uh, here? And they said, uh, yeah. 
he said, do you have an appointment? I said, no. I said, I just happened to be in the neighborhood, and I thought maybe if he was available, I'd like to see him. So she said, one moment, his office was right across from the reception desk. She went and she came back. She said, you're a lucky man. He said, he'll see you. So I went in and I... Made your pitch? Made my pitch. I sat down and told him I'm working as primarily as a director in Madison, Wisconsin, but I, my mother's in the hospital here and I'm from Chicago and it'd be great if I could find a job at CBS. And he said... Uh, you want to be on air talent? I said, no, 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 no. I said, I'm in the production. I'm looking for a production job. So at this point, you had sort of stepped away from that. You knew you could do it, but I that could wasn't here. But I was more intrigued with being a, in the booth, being, again, going back to being a team member. When I, when I was on camera, I would hear the cameraman laughing and the stage manager laughing, and I'd say, what's going on? And then they'd tell me, the guys, what, what's going on in the control room? And I decided that's where I want to be, in the control room, because that's where the fun was. So this was a matter of, again, wanting to get a production job. So this was a man named Orloff, Sidney Orloff, and he almost looked like Santa Claus. He was a round guy, but everybody at CBS was Ivy League. They wore button-down shirts and ties. And uh, so Mr. Orloff said to me, well, there isn't anything available. He said, but let me take you and introduce you to the program manager, program director. So he brought me and introduced me to um, a man named Don Dillion, and he was like uh, call central casting and send me a program director. He was like a guy in his 30s, and he had the button-down collar and the Ivy League tie, and uh, we talked a while, and he said, there's, there's really nothing available, but he said, uh, there's a summer replacement job coming up, I'd consider you for that job if you wanted it. It's only for three months. And I said, and what does it pay? He said, $120 a week. Well, that's a lot more than $40 yeah, a week. Yeah, beats what you yeah. were making in Wisconsin. Did yeah. it matter, by the way, Dad? Did it matter what it made if it was going to make less? Cause... No, it was a fortune to me yeah. uh, to think of $120 a week. But, but even if it was not that much, would it have mattered to you? I would have taken it if it was for nothing. Mm -hmm. Didn't, you know, it was being able to work for CBS in Chicago. Wow. Big studio. And I, and I, uh, I grew up knowing all those people on, on the air that were the television stars. They were kind of my, my heroes as, as a kid growing up in Chicago. He said, uh, I'll let you know in a couple of weeks. And I said, great. So again, I never said anything to anybody, never said anything to the people at the television station and you in went in there, you didn't even have a resume. You're just kind of going in, yeah. Whatever. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, about two weeks later, I got a call from Don Dillion, and he said, uh, hey, listen, you still interested in the summer replacement job? And I said, absolutely. He said, uh, can you start next week? I said, I can start tomorrow because <laughs> there were there were no such thing as contracts at the, at the station in Madison. It was just you worked and they could let you go at any time and you could quit at any time. I wasn't happy there after I had gotten out of the service. The uh, station manager that I knew had been replaced and uh, he was a very hands-on kind of guy that, hmm. that was not... Uh, motivating of uh, 
of any kind of creativeness in anybody. And uh, not that I had fights with him, but uh, it, I knew it was time to move on. And this was opportunity knocking. That took me, brought me to Chicago. And after the three months, that job turned into a permanent job. And, uh, and Chicago was my dream of, if I had never gotten any further than Chicago, my life would have been uh, completed. This is my kind of town, Chicago is my kind of town, Chicago is. Then Chicago offered a, a lot of opportunity and uh, uh, How did you meet mom? Okay, good question. Uh, mom was, uh, my wife is an identical twin. And she and her sister were radio singers. They sang on a, on a radio broadcast in the morning. At that time, there were a lot of live shows on radio. And uh, they had a show called The Bandwagon. And uh, my wife and her twin sister were vocalists on that show. And they would have live bands, and they would do a show in the morning, every morning. And I met them in a coffee shop. I didn't know them, but I occasionally I would sit down and say hi and have a cup of coffee with them. As things happened, the uh, University of Wisconsin was going to play Northwestern football teams. And my fraternity brothers were coming into, into town. And uh, I had to come up with a date for the football game. And I was standing out in front of the studio and I could see the twins walking down toward the studio. They were probably coming back from lunch. And they were famous for being the double No, no, they weren't then. Oh, not that time? No, oh. no they were, but they were already, a, they were famous were because they were entity. singing in Chicago. They oh, were, but they didn't you know, people the on, yeah, they weren't on television, but uh, but people knew them as the, the Boyd twins. Huh. And uh, as I say, I didn't really know them very well, only to say hello and talk to them in a coffee shop. And I, uh, as they got closer, uh, the light went off. I said, wow, wouldn't it be great if I took the twins to the football game? Here I am with identical twins. That would really impress <laughs> my fraternity brothers. I, you know, I'd really have some, you know, something to show them. And as the twins got up to me, I, I say, hey, hi, how are you doing? Started a little conversation. And then I said, uh, so what are you girls doing Saturday? And one of them said, uh, oh, I'm busy, but Jane's not. They're Jane and Joan. And said, but Jane's not. And Jane was really upset because <laughs> she didn't want her sister saying she wasn't doing anything and that she was av available. I wasn't really too happy because I wanted twins. I didn't want oh. one. One wasn't. It's not a to, complete set. And it wasn't going to impress anybody. I mean, she was pretty, but it, but it was not. It wasn't going to be like, the hey, look who's Al, Al's up here with identical twins. The vision you had was yeah. suddenly like, oh. But we were both stuck. I said to her, do you want to go to the football game on Saturday? And she said, oh, yeah, that would be nice. So we made a date. The day of that football game, I, I worked at the station. I, I did a, a show in which... Uh, the couple on the show uh, did lip syncs to, to records. And then one of the records, uh, one of the lip sync numbers they did, they wore big raccoon coats. And so I thought, wow, it's November. 
and it's freezing out, <laughs> I'll take these raccoon coats and, and That'll we'll, be a we'll go to the game. Sure. So again, I show up. So you two can apartment. be twins. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we do. But, <laughs> but more than anything, we'd look like college kids at a game with raccoon coats. We'd be unique. Well, Jane was devastated when I showed up with a raccoon coat. She said, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? She actually went back to her bedroom and said to her mother, I'm not going to the game with him. <laughs> He's crazy. And Jane's mother said, no, I, they're warm. And, you know, why not? It'll be fun. So she talked Jane into wearing the coat, and we went to the game. Anyway, we had a great time. I mean, we just it couldn't have been better. I think uh, we probably fell in love right there and then. And uh, Jane asked me that day, she said, well, who else do you date at the station? And I said to her, I date everybody. Um, I have no no favor. I, I date a lot of girls. And uh, Jane said to me, she said at the time, I said to myself, not anymore. She snatched you up. Well, she snatched me up and I knew that I was in trouble because here was this uh, Orthodox Jewish kid falling in love with a Catholic girl. I knew that was going to be trouble. Uh, trouble for me and trouble for my parents because my father would never, ever accept it. And her family? They did they weren't going to be happy either. It was taboo back yeah. in that time. Yeah, it was really difficult times uh, then. We had a, a romance for about a year. Everybody talked Jane out of our relationship. The priests, her mother, her family, everybody said, this can't go on. And I remember that I went on vacation with a couple of guys to Europe. When I came back from Europe, I wanted an answer from Jane. For some reason, Jane sent me letters. At that time, when you were in Europe, you could go to an American Express office and pick up mail wherever you were in, in any country. I never got any letters from Jane. I thought it's a little funny. But uh, when I got back, Jane told me that her letters never got to her. They were sent back for some reason. She said she sent me a lot of letters, but they came back. And she took that as a sign from God that this... God was telling her that this relationship shouldn't go on, along with what the priests and everybody else told her. So I, I not brought, because of who you were, but because of your religion. Religion yeah. was, a, yeah, religion, for the first time, entered into this thing. And uh, uh, I brought her some gifts and things, usually that I bought her in, in Europe. And uh, she said, "I can't accept them." I said, "Yes, you can. You keep them." For about two years, we didn't correspond. We didn't talk to each other. Occasionally, I think I would call her. Then they got the contract. They became the Doubleman twins. They became famous. My uh, career kept improving. I, I went from a stage manager to an assistant director and from an assistant director to a director and then to a director producer. And I was getting a lot of recognition in Chicago. Uh, I was now directing film documentaries and my life was really kind of kind of changing and Jane and Joan were appearing at a, a very very uh, famous club the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago I went to uh, the Edgewater Beach to see the show and watch her perform but we never talked and I never 
never uh, saw her after the show. But shortly after that, uh, Joan got married. I thought that I should uh, congratulate her. I called Jane, and she said, uh, "It's you know, it's really great to hear from you." And I said, "Are you happy?" She said, "No." <laughs> And I kind of tear up because I said, I'm not happy either. I said, I, I want to see you. She, she said, I can't. <laughs> and I said, why? She said, because I'm too fat. <laughs> <laughs> Typical woman. <laughs> yeah. So I said, you're going to see me. So persistent, so mm -hmm. ambitious. And I uh, met her at uh, the uh, Forest Preserves is a, an area in the suburbs of Chicago that uh, it's kind of the woods people go to and walk around through the woods. And we walked around and uh, we uh, just agreed that we still love each other. And uh, so <clears throat> why, uh, why should we be apart? And the heck with our mothers, fathers, the priests, and everybody. So I I was doing two shows that I was producing in Chicago at the time, among some other things. One was for the Archdiocese of the Catholic Church, and the other was for the Board <laughs> of Rabbis. Of course there is. Yeah. In Al so, uh, world. Yeah, so in my world, I uh, I asked the... Uh, the guy that ran the board of rabbis if uh if i married jane if uh he'd participate in a dual ceremony and he said no Ouch. he wouldn't wouldn't do it and then i asked the priest uh uh if he would and he said uh why not and i said because uh board of rabbis could not it was it would not be uh acceptable to them and uh, he, Father Banahan, was the uh, the guy that did all the television shows on all the networks for the for the archdiocese. And he said, uh, "You know, well, he said I've got uh, two other couples right now, a kid at the CBS who's in the news department named Goldberg, and another kid named Rubenstein. He said they want to marry Catholic girls too." So uh, he said, uh, it's no problem. He said, I know you and I know Jane. And uh, said, if you want to go through with this, I'll, I'll do it. And I said to him, so what kind of names are Schwartz, Rubenstein, and Goldberg for Alter Royce? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I've got another problem. He said, what's that? I said, Jane is... Uh, always wanted to be married in the cathedral. And he says, so what's the problem? I said, can you perform a, a, a non-Jew marrying a Catholic in the cathedral? He said, yeah, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. So Jane said, and how do you feel about it? I said, I don't care. You know, it's not, it's not anything that's going to affect me. And we got engaged on my parents' 50th anniversary. And my mother, I said to my mother, I don't want to hurt 
that, but uh, this is my life. And this is such a important sip of coffee. So she told my father, she said, uh, I want you to acknowledge something. Alan is going to marry Jane. And she said, I only want one gift from you for our anniversary. That he'll always be our son. Because by my father's conviction, he would have to say the death prayer. And my mother said, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't want you to um, ever ask him how or where he got married. I want him and his wife and, and their children <clears throat> to always be welcome in our home. And my father, who had a very dry sense of humor, turned to my mother and said, and what'll you give me? <laughs> and he never asked. And uh, I know it was probably very hard for him, but uh, it was never a problem. He embraced mom. Yes. They ended up to be friends. They got to really be great, great friends. Again, and uh, conduit. You are opening up their world as well in ways that. Yeah, and again, as uh, as whatever power pulls the strings, uh, my parents uh, moved to Miami, as all good Jews did, <laughs> from Chicago. And uh, when Jane and I had. Uh, Two children and Wendy was she was pregnant with Wendy. I got a uh, show to do in Miami, so I went to Miami for uh, maybe four months to live there. My parents got to meet our children, so everything works. You know, it's just I'm I'm a firm believer that everything works no matter what. When something unfortunate happens. Somehow or other, the best will still turn up. I think I've tried to instill that in my children, our children, that uh, uh, life is productive. And even when there are barriers, somehow or other, you can get around them. Uh, this has been kind of a <laughs> emotional talk for me because we're bringing up and opening up doors that uh, well, I haven't talked about for a long time. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to have you sharing with us with me because i'm no wendy knows your story i'm i'll take you just off just a little bit one of the things that i read about you that i found like instantly captivating was that you stage managed or produced the 1960 debate in chicago between nixon and see, see yeah. i'm taking you in a different direction <laughs> yeah, to no get, no you know, that no but that's and, an, and i think it kind of comes back to i think that's an ex that's another situation of uh, of an opportunity that advances itself. I was doing a morning show at CBS as a uh, stage manager. Uh, Lee Phillip uh, was a, a personality in Chicago that did a lot of women's shows and did an afternoon show called 
the Lee Phillips show where she had guests and uh, celebrities and whatever. She was a particular favorite of my mother. And because my mother watched that show, she thought, what a big man I was because I was working with Lee Phillip. That show went on at noon. And uh, as that show ended, I worked that day. My work schedule that day was uh, 6 in the morning till 2 o'clock in, in the afternoon. And there was a lot of hubbub going around the studio. I didn't exactly know what was going on. And uh, so I asked, what's, what's going on? And they said, oh, tonight's the debate. And I said, what debate? And they said, Kennedy and Nixon are having the first presidential debate ever here in Studio One tonight. And I said, oh, you're kidding. And my first inquiry into the debate was, who's going to direct? <laughs> So they, jump right in. Yeah, so they said Don Hewitt is coming in. Don Hewitt was then the ultimate news director from CBS in New York. I said, they're bringing a guy in from New York? They said, yeah. And I said, Don Hewitt, wow. I said, I got to watch him direct. So I went to the program director, this Don Dillion, who originally hired me and brought me to the station. I said, hey, Don, what do I have to do? to stay here to, and watch the debate tonight in the control room. He said, uh, oh, you can't, Al. I said, why not? He said, because we have to clear the studio at 3 o'clock. Anybody who's not cleared has to get out. Secret Service are all over the place. So I said, well, clear me. <laughs> he said, it's too late. How can I clear you now? I can't clear you. I said, oh, come on. There's some way you can hide me here in the studio. Oh, my God. And he said, wait, he said, you were in the service, right? I said, yeah. He said, give me your service. You still know your service number and everything? I said, yeah. He said, give me your service number. Let me, let me see if I can get it processed. So I still could remember my serial number oh my at that God. time, and I, I gave it to him. And he came back to me and said, okay, look, here's what we can do. I can put you in Sid's. Simon's makeup room. You can hang out in there till the debate starts. Then you can go in the control room and watch Don Hewitt. So I said, okay, that's great. He said, I can't pay you. I said, look, you don't have to pay me. Just, just let me stay. I said, I just want to see the debate. So I'm in the makeup room with, the, with this guy, uh, Sid Simons, and CBS sent in another makeup guy from New York because they didn't think we were capable enough in Chicago to, to do, you know, we were, we were still Chicago. They were New right, York. Of course. And every major executive from CBS was here for this thing. I was beginning to realize what a big deal this, this debate was going to be. And uh, so I, I went into the uh, studio while they were setting up. And here all the top executives were looking in the camera. They wanted to see the set even though there was a monitor there right next to it, and they could see it on the monitor, they still insisted on looking in the camera. First, like the head of CBS, Stanton, in the thing, no, not Stanton, was somebody else. Uh, some of the other guys looked in the, the, the camera first. They'd say, beautiful, oh yeah, set looks great, set looks great. Then Stanton looked in it, and he said, set looks too busy. The other guys got back in line, and they said, yeah, it's too busy, <laughs> it's, too busy. <laughs> it's too busy. And then... Uh, Stanton said, uh, what can we do? And one of the guys said, well, we can fly a scrim in from New York. 
a scrim is a piece of scenery that you know usually they used to because you could see light through it so you could light one side of it see the other side of it or you could put the light on the front end and not see through this curtain so they said yeah we'll fly a scrim in from new york i said you know we have scrims here in chicago we i can get you a scrim nobody even heard me i was just like <laughs> who is this guy talking no how long will it take it take three hours to get a scrim here from new york fly one in so i said okay this is cbs boy they're really powerful they do you know they they're do going things all their, the way their way <laughs> so i went back and i to the makeup room and hanging out with sid simons and all of a sudden in walked kennedy John Kennedy. Oh my God. Bigger than life. It was as if uh, you called casting and said, send a president over. Oh my God. And he came in, he was suntanned, it's a little bit of streak of blonde in his hair, just a little highlight, something. He looked incredible. He looked like a like a movie star. And he was joking and telling about it, his what was going on in in Miami and uh and sometimes he would look at me and while he was telling a joke and he'd go like that and I'd wave my finger back at him like, yeah, I hear that. And I'd chuckle like I was part of his entourage. <laughs> and uh, they, he finished, he had a little powder or something put on his face and then he- He didn't need much because he was he had, tan. He didn't need very much. And then he, he walked out, he shook hands with everybody in the makeup room. And uh, then Sid Simons turned to me and he said, Al, go get Nixon. And I didn't think much about it. I said, okay, I knew where Nixon was being held. And I walked into the room where Nixon and all of his people were. And they were all talking. And I said, excuse me, we're ready in makeup for Mr. Nixon. And then all of a sudden it got quiet in the room. And one of the men in there looked at me and said, uh, Mr. Nixon doesn't wear makeup. And I looked at him and he looked a little like he needed a shave. And I said, well, maybe just a little powder. And Nixon looked at me and said, oh, I, I don't wear any makeup. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And I went back to Sid Simon and I said, uh, Sid, he doesn't want any makeup. And Sid said to me, you're, you're kidding. I said, no, it was black and white television. And everybody needed makeup for black and white television because it, the lights were very, very harsh. Just drown them out. And as history tells the story, people who listened to the debate on radio thought Nixon won. But people who saw it on television thought Nixon looked greasy and sweaty and slimy. And because of that, he lost the debate. So the, it was like I had touched history at that moment That's in my life. Maybe things would have changed. Possibly had he accepted my invitation, he may have won the debate. But the next day, worst of all, I read in the, uh, in the Chicago Tribune when Nixon was asked why he didn't wear any makeup, he said, nobody offered it to me. And I said, wait. And this is when I you did. learn politicians I are did. liars. I was there. Yeah. I'm going to say it, people. Oh, God. Trump. So, I mean, that was really... Really great. What and, a and moment. It's probably a moment with history that was one of the first in my life that uh, oh my 
like Chicago in the 60s. Yeah. My God, the because, Chicago 7. And, yeah, oh. and uh, I mean, because of uh, being in the right place or the wrong place at any particular time, my life took on various, various uh, journeys that I've been very, very grateful for. And mainly because it, they just happened. I mean, the Nixon thing, I'd have to say, yeah, I, I forced it because I wanted to see Don Hewitt direct. I didn't care about Kennedy or Nixon. It was just somebody else that really I, I wanted to. And, and it made me ask. I've never been afraid to ask. I always know that uh, there are two answers, yes or no. And whichever one happens, life is going to continue. It's not going to end because somebody says, says no to me. And uh, so, I mean, that, uh, uh, there are lots and lots of stories that uh, I've been afforded. Dad, and, how do you define success? Well, huh, I'm going to go back to another Jimmy, Jimmy Durante situation. By the way, I did meet Jimmy Durante when I went to, went to Los Angeles that time. He was incredible to me. And, and as a matter of fact, I brought the five guys that I traveled with. They all met Jimmy Durante too. And when we left NBC Studios that day, Durante said, uh, <coughs> are you going to see Hope while you're here? And in unison, we all said, Bob Hope? Huh? And he said, yeah, sure. I told him you were coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and he said, hold on a second. And he got on the phone. He dialed a number. Oh, my God. And he said, Bob, the guys are here. <laughs> yeah, the guys from Wisconsin. Oh. And he said, hold on. You guys doing anything tomorrow? We said, no. He said, Bob wants you to come by Paramount Studios and say hello to him. And we said, you're kidding. He said, no. So we hear five kids from Wisconsin. We get in our car the next day, and we drive to Paramount Studios. Bob Hope was making a movie. We get onto a, onto a movie soundstage. He's making a movie with Rosemary Clooney. All the way while we're driving from Madison to Los Angeles, we're singing, come on to my house. My house will come on. Love now there song. she is right in front of us. Rosemary Clooney, she was gracious and beautiful. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you apple, plum, and I forgot I do. So now we not only meet Jimmy Durante, but we meet Bob Hope, and unfortunately we lost the Rose Bowl game, but but you won. It was great, yeah, but it was great. So going, you, back, going back to your question of what is success. As I advanced in my career at CBS in Chicago, I directed a show called At Random at Night. It was a show that was hosted by uh, a uh, Chicago newspaper columnist, Irv Cupsonet. The show was called At Random because it went on at midnight and it stayed on the air as long as good conversation could be held, sometimes till three in the morning. And celebrities who came to Chicago would want to be on this show. And it was an eclectic group of people, poets, songwriters, recording artists, actors, musicians, politicians, 
these people would sit around and talk to the wee hours of the morning. And uh, the charm of the show was you could tune in anytime. If you got tired, you'd go to sleep. Celebrities who came into Chicago and were sitting in their hotel room would tune this on and call the station and say, can I come over? I'm here in Chicago. We'd say, yeah, come on. So that was another great opportunity of being a chance, having a chance to direct that show. Lo and behold, Jimmy Durante appeared on that show. And it was an opportunity to meet him again. One of the, one of the other artists on the show was another comedian. His name was Lenny Bruce. Yeah, just, just a and little someone that, named Lenny yeah, Bruce. And Lenny Bruce was just getting started in what's happened to today's comedy. That being gross, trying for shock humor has become the roadway for today's comedians. Lenny Bruce and, and Jimmy Durante got into a discussion that night. And Lenny Bruce said to Jimmy Durante, your world of comedy is over. And Jimmy Durante said, I beg your pardon. And Lenny Bruce said, you don't understand, Jimmy. Nobody wants to hear jokes anymore. They want to hear situations. They want to be expanded. They want their world opened up. They want to be touched. And that's what my brand of comedy does. I talk about things that people don't think they should hear in public. And they're shocked because I, I open these things up. And Jimmy Durante said, well, I hope you're wrong. He said, I pray you're wrong. He said, because my kind of humor is for everybody and your kind of humor is only for a select few. Well, in the course of that conversation, Irv Cupson had said, well, Jimmy, you've been one of the most successful people in the world of show business. You've been on in vaudeville. You've been on radio. You've been on television. What is the meaning of success to you? And I guess I will never forget his answer. It's very simple. He said, success is doing what you like to do and getting paid for it. And he said, if you're a truck driver and you enjoy it, you're a success. He said, everybody can find something in this world that they like to do, and that's successful. And... I think that all through life, I felt that. I think, Wendy, you probably know, and I've always said to the three of you, you and Jill and Scott, that whatever profession you choose, just choose something that you like to do. And I remember you first thought you wanted to be an actress and you went to... Uh, uh, the American Academy of American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Then you got a part-time job so you could uh, work with children and have time to audition. And then you found that you liked working with children more than auditioning or doing the, the, the dramatic thing. And remember when you came to Mom and I and you, you asked if you could go back to school? And we said, absolutely. I never knew it was going to be for 12 more years. <laughs> I missed out a lot. I went back. But, yeah. but, but I mean, you found what you like to do, and it's really, really important. And uh, I know that uh, in our my son Scott's case, I helped him get into the uh, Directors Guild because uh, I got him a job as a stage manager, and he did that for a while. And then he uh, 
he told me he was always fascinated with the post-production side of the world. And would I be disappointed in him if he didn't want to be a director but wanted to work in post-production? And he's made a career for himself in post-production. And the answer is no. What Whatever makes you happy. Because we have to be... Uh, we have to have what we do in life be contributory. And the only way we're going to contribute is if, if we get a, a joy out of it ourselves. Meaning, purpose, and passion, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Listen, I'm sorry that I took up so much of no, your time. No, no, no. no this uh, is perfect. This yeah. is, can I just do a little word association with my dad real quick? Sure. Dad, we're going to do word association. I'm going to say a word or words and whatever comes to your mind. Okay. Okay? Okay. I don't know if I'm good at this. There's no good or bad. <laughs> okay. It just is. Love. Commitment. Best life moment or one of them? I think travel. President. I'm sorry? President. Presidents? <laughs> a president. A president or a president? President. Like Obama? Like Obama, whatever comes to your mind. Well, I like that that's the first thing he says. Yes. <laughs> president. Well, well, I can't be one word with president hmm. because. My feeling is, in life, majority rules. And whoever has become our president, I've always felt our lives are not going to change. I've been through a lot of presidents. The next morning after an election, when I wake up, nothing really changed in my life. There's a different situation that we have right now, uh, where majority didn't rule, and we have a president that I hope with all my heart succeeds because it's important to all of us. But I think it's very unusual that this was not the choice of the majority. I guess if I had to put in one word, it would, one word would have to be hope. Trump. I think I covered it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, disappointment. Life advice. Flexibility. You want a sentence of advice? Sure. You know what it is, because I've always told you that uh, the one thing that I learned through my experience in Japan was the saying that they had, the wise bamboo bends, meaning that uh, when a strong wind comes up, the mighty oak can be broken in half because it won't bend. But the wise bamboo bends back and forth with the wind. And I think that's what our attitudes have to be. Are you the wind or the bamboo? I'm the bamboo. That's so cute, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Oh. Oh. Thank you so Thank much you for so coming much. and sharing okay. all of this with us. It's okay. very inspiring. Yeah, and I'm not so happy with you guys. You made me cry. <laughs> Two therapists. That's what our job. No. <laughs> Thank you for coming Thank and sharing you. your life okay. experience. Okay. Yeah, I mean, very inspirational. So many things. What an interesting life so far. Yeah. So far. Yeah. Yeah, I want to thank Al for 
for sharing his stories with us. And hey, to all of you, thanks for hanging out and hanging in there with us as listeners. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. After witnessing eight decades of change in the landscape of American culture, it's just so impressive how Al manages to remain optimistic, hopeful, and productive. We didn't do Dr. Wendy's dream journal exercise. Dr. Wendy's dream journal. But maybe you want to do a word prompt like Wendy did with her dad, or you could just sit down and jot down what stuck with you from this episode. Because here are a few of my takeaways from this conversation. On taking a risk and vulnerability, ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? And don't be afraid to fail. I wasn't afraid to fail. Two, don't uselessly dwell on shit. If worrying about something doesn't bring about a positive action, then let it go and move on. Just, Toss it to the just universe. forget about it. Yep. Three, belonging is a basic human need that is often denied with a modern defiant cry for individuality. And Al feels so strongly that we need to show up for each other in real life, which I agree with, especially more and more since communities are mostly found online these days. And we need to consider the impact and joy that can be found in working together as a team. We all have a social obligation and responsibility to the people that we surround ourselves with. Four, whatever is happening politically, the world's going on, just keeps on going. I've been through a lot of presidents. The next morning after an election when I wake up, nothing really changed in my life. Five, find a way to do what you enjoy. Even if it takes hard work, if you enjoy it, it's gonna be worth it. Success is doing what you like to do and getting paid for it. Six, when you follow your personal interests rather than your pocket interests, things will fall into place. I'm a firm believer that everything works no matter what. And of course, now more than ever, what I will never forget, the wise bamboo bends. You can find Al on Facebook and at aldcp at aol.com. To find us on social media, follow the girls. We're on Facebook, on Twitter, Wendy's at Ask Dr. Wendy, and I'm at Jenny JV Wilson, and that's Jenny with an I. On Instagram, you can find Wendy at I am Dr. Wendy, and you can find me at The Preppy Rebel. Email us any feedback or questions at relationshipshowla at gmail.com. So as I always say, be as authentically yourselves as you can possibly stand. And as Wendy always says, stay open. And as Al always says, After you, Flanagan. Right behind you, Flanagan, was my, my only line. Okay? Thank you so much. I got to go back to work. I got a show to do.